Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans 9 for the reading of this morning's scripture. We'll be reading Romans 9, 30 through 10, 4. And the word of the Lord reads, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges once wrote, To be justified means more than being declared not guilty. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. It means God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to His Son, Jesus Christ, and has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. So a buddy of mine the other day, you know, was upset with his doctor, and, and uh, he felt that the doctor was failing to, to do him right, and he was failing to to treat his skin condition with the right medication. And I asked, well, what, did he prescribe you anything for it? And he said, yes, of course he did. He prescribed me some kind of lotion for my condition. And uh, I said, so what's, what seems to be the problem? I said, the problem is it doesn't work. I said, okay. I said, uh, are, you, are you using the medication in the right way? You know, because sometimes, you know, sometimes people don't always follow directions real good, you know? And he said, I'm doing exactly what he told me to do. He said, the doctor told me to use this lotion religiously, and I have been. And I was like, okay, so that means you're using it every day then. And he's like, no, I'm not using it every day. He said, the doctor told me to, to use it religiously, and I do, right? I, I use it religiously. That means I put it on my skin twice a year, once at Christmas and once at Easter. <laughs> right. Well, you have your Bibles out. Please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians um, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. <laughs> it's really tough on me when I find something funny, I have to wait all week to share it with you. So, <laughs> In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I, I really love being a pastor, and I love sharing the, the Word of God with His people, and I love helping people to come to faith in Christ, and 
I love watching people grow closer to him and to learn to follow him. But I still, even to this day, have a very special place in my heart for youth ministry as well. I began you know, my ministry career as a youth pastor here at First Baptist Church, and I continue to, uh, to minister to the teens. And, and I've always loved shepherding junior high and high school uh, students. And, and the reason is because at their age, they're really beginning to kind of like think things through and start to try to figure things out. And, and, and they haven't been really set in their ways too much. And, and they're really starting to gra- you know, grapple with some of the bigger things and the bigger issues in the world around them. And, 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 and their problems, though the problems of teens can be big, they're still teenage problems, which means they tend to be less complex than, than typical grown-up problems. Because let's face it, grown-up problems can get really, really messy fast, right? Uh, and so I, I love to help them work through those things, and I love how open teens can be to faith in Christ. And uh, I, have to, I have to tell you, I've learned a lot you know, over the years working with teens. But one of the lessons I learned early on was how desperately these teens need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again. Even, even though that they've grown up in, in, in church and in Christian homes, these kids need to continue to hear the gospel. In fact, as I was a youth pastor for just a little while, when I finally, I finally just decided to ask the, these, the, the youth group a simple question I thought that they would know the answer to, right? And, and the question I thought that they would get right was this, what must a person do to be saved? And the answers I got from these teens really kind of took me aback. It surprised me because the things that they were saying was, was like, well, what you need to do is you need to go to church to be saved. It's like, what? And others would say, well, you need to read your Bible and you need to pray to be saved. Some would say that you need to, you need to really try hard to become a better person. And others would say, well, you need to do a lot of good things to make them outweigh your bad things in your life. And it really just shocked me, right, that not one of these teens had said that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now understand, being part of a church family and worshiping together is an important part of Christian life. Being in church together is an important part of of what it means to follow Christ. In fact, it's God's will and plan for Christians to worship together and to live together in community and to encourage each other and edify one another. But, but that's not what makes a person right with God. You're not saved because you sit in the chairs here on Sunday morning. And, and reading your Bible and praying is an important spiritual discipline. We all ought to do that and grow in that. That's how we stay connected to God. That's how we learn more about Him. That's how we grow in our Christian faith. But none of these things are the things that save us. They don't make us have a right relationship with God and, and growing in obedience to God's commands and pursuing holiness and, and seeking to live a life that reflects God's righteous character and, and, and a life that demonstrates his love towards other people is important. And we are certainly called to let our light shine before men so that, that, they, that they would see our good works and the good works that God's prepared for us to do. But these are not the root of our salvation. They might be the fruit of it, but they're not the cause of it. They're not the things that save us. The scriptures make it clear that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's that simple. We put our hope and trust in Jesus, and that's the basis on which we are saved. Well, if that's true, then 
why then do these teens who really are excited about Christ, why all these other answers? Why is the basis of salvation in their minds about what we do rather than what Christ has done? Well, the answer, there's a number of reasons for it, but I think the most common and most foundational reason for them um, is, is because that's what they were taught. That's what they'd learned. Right? And, and how did they learn that? Well, they learned a lot of that from culture for sure, but do but you know where else they learned it? They learned it from, from church. They learned it from their Christian friends. They learned that from their Christian parents. That's how they learned that. A lot of these kids went to VBS and made a profession of faith when they were really young. And, 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 and everyone around them then says, now that you're a Christian, right? Praise the Lord that you're a Christian. Now that you're a Christian, now you need to start doing this and start doing that and this, and then you fill in the blank, right? And now that you're a Christian, you need to stop doing that, and you better stop doing that, and you better stop, and then you fill in the blank. These kids were taught to let Jesus in their hearts, and they were told, now that you're a Christian, you need to, to behave this way, and you need to act this way. And, and most of their Christian education became about how you behave and how you act and how you look like a Christian to the rest of the world. And do you know why these people were, were teaching these things to these kids? It's because that's what they were taught. You see, what they were teaching is what they had learned, which is really about how to be religious rather than actually having a relationship with Christ and following him. They were taught how to be religious and how to practice their tradition rather than holding on to Christ and following him. And they were learning about how to be religious and how to look and act like someone who practices their religion. But here's the problem. Is, is when you learn to be religious, the gravitational pull tends to be towards legalism and towards following rules like what's a Christian supposed to look like. The gravitational pull is towards legalism and self-righteousness. And because of that, people grew up believing that my relationship with God is somehow about external things, about the things that I do. It's about my behavior, my ability to look the part and, and to do Christian things and to look like a person who does Christian things. And, and the gravitational pull is towards legalism and self-righteousness. And, and I'm not just talking about groups who reject historic Orthodox Christianity, like those who insist you have to perform good works and, and, and to, be, to be saved and to get sealed in a temple. Right? Or, or those who, who go door-to-door -door passing out magazines and, and reject the, the deity of Christ. Or those people who, who insist that you must follow the Old Testament to be saved. Or those people who say you have to worship on Sunday, I mean, excuse me, Saturday rather than, than Sunday. I'm not talking about the overt legalistic religions who have a worse works-based righteousness built into their theology. I'm talking about 
Christians and churches who affirm the deity of Christ and who, who believe in the Trinity and who gladly say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even many of them will tend to bend towards some sort of legalism or self-righteousness over time. In fact, I was talking with a couple and, and the wife said that she remembered growing up in the church and she remembered you know, that she was saved by grace through faith at an early age, but she believed that she had to live a certain way and act a certain way and do certain things and, and not do certain things in order to please God, right? To make God love her. She, in a sense, felt that she had to earn God's love and approval. Now, she realizes now that you can't earn God's love and approval because that comes by grace. It's not about what we do, right? And she now knows that her obedience is motivated by gratitude rather than self, some sense of obligation. But, but where does this legalism come from in, in the church? How did it get into churches who truly want to honor Christ? Well, it came really through a few movements. I mean, there's a number of factors, but there are a few movements, I think, that, that, that really, I think, lend itself to this. And, and they all started off as as things that are really well-intentioned, right? That really well we, we want to see people come to Christ, right? But, but the problem is there was a flawed understanding of the gospel and the, and the theology of God. Movements like revivalism, this idea that, that you can create, right, some, some excitement and manufacture true revival in a church or a community by by planning a series of, of, of events or sermons that you can somehow artificially get people excited enough to come to faith in Christ. And then there is the, the movement of easy believism, this movement of getting people to make a decision for Christ and telling them, if you'll just pray this prayer, then you're saved no matter what, no matter what happens with the rest of your life. And then there was the seeker-sensitive movement where the focus of the church became about creating an environment that's attractive to those who aren't even believers and outsiders rather than on worshiping God and edifying and strengthening the people of God in the church. And, and the result has been, you know, of these well-intentioned movements was to create, you know, they, they wanted to create something that, that, that attracted people, but what it happened is, is we ended up with a theologically anemic church that's really become about best practices with respect to business rather than teaching the foundational truths of the Christian faith and really emphasizing people on the gospel of Jesus Christ and then taking those people and helping them to be disciples or actual followers of Jesus. And the idea that snuck into the church through these movements is the gospel is kind of like the doorway into Christianity. The gospel is, is the doorway that, that allows you to come into the church. The gospel has just become basically kind of like the springboard or the diving board into the pool of Christianity. You hear the gospel, you hear the good news, you invite Jesus into your heart, and now that you're saved, and then now that you're saved, you really don't need to think about that gospel stuff anymore because now you got to move on to the next level Christianity. 
And next level Christianity is you need to start following a bunch of rules and you need to start, you need to start doing this and start doing that. And now that you're a Christian, you need to start looking like a Christian, which means you need to change your clothes and you need to hide your tattoos and you need to, to always be happy in front of your Christian family so they can see the joy in the, of the Lord on your life all the time. And, and you need to start doing stuff, you know, because Christians do stuff, Right? Right? You need to start working in a food ministry and you need to start serving the homeless and you need to work on this community project and that community project and you need to do this to prove that you're a good Christian because if you're not doing those things, then maybe you're really not. But then suddenly, you end up finding out that you're living a charade, a double life. You see, there's the, the church you that your brothers and sisters in Christ get to see and then there's the the real you that your family gets to see. Tell me I'm wrong, right? I mean, there's the you that's in front of the church family who's all smiles and praise the Lord and everything's good, right? And then you get home and your kids upset you and then the monster comes out again, right? Kids are going, hey, how come mama's not acting like she does in church at home, right? You live this kind of Christian version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, and, and when people ask, like, how do you know that you're a Christian? You're like, well, because I go to church and because I, I pray and I read my Bible and I serve in this ministry and I do that and I attend that Bible study and blah, 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 blah. That's the trap that so many people fall into. That's the trap that many ministers lead people into unwittingly. And, and that's the stuff that parents teach their children, not maliciously, but with a sense of really trying to shape them the right way. The gravitational pull of religious people is always towards some sort of self-justification, self-righteousness. And that really is the bottom line issue that Paul's addressing in this text before us today. The reason why so many Jews rejected the gospel is because of their legalism and their commitment to their, religious, their religiosity and self-righteousness. That, that self-righteousness blinded them to the simple, basic truth of the gospel of grace. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Paul writes, beginning in verse 30, what shall we say then? This is a phrase that we should be familiar with by now. Uh, if you've been here with us, you will know that Paul has been using phrases like this, expressions like this throughout the letter of Romans, because he's been using a literary device called a diatribe where he's having a, a, a conversation, a dialogue with an imaginary person in order to explain and defend the gospel. I mean, I think we, we, we engage in that from time to time, right? He's just basically having a back and forth conversation, you know, with himself, but with, with kind of an imaginary opponent to kind of express his ideas. And we know that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans in order to explain the gospel so that the church would have a strong theological foundation to build off of. And in so doing, Paul wrote a master exposition of the gospel. And in the first eight chapters, Paul has explained what the gospel is, the blessings the gospel gives to those who believe it, how the gospel works, how that gospel brings freedom to believers, and then how that gospel guarantees the hope that we have in Christ. And, and beginning in chapter 9, Paul begins to defend the gospel 
against a monumental objection. And that objection, an objection that had threatened to undermine the entire Christian faith itself. And this objection was essentially this. God promised in the Old Testament to Abraham that he would bless and save his people, Abraham's offspring. And, and the Jews believed that they were God's people and Abraham's offspring simply because they were related genetically to Abraham. Right? But the gospel that Paul had been preaching says that those who, who believe in Christ will be saved and those who don't, won't. Well, if that's true, then why do so many of the Jewish people who were supposedly God's people reject the gospel and are not saved? Based on their reasoning, the Jews... Um, believed that either the gospel is false or God's promises to them to save them had, had failed if the gospel is true. Because many of God's people, God's people, Abraham's offspring, were rejecting the gospel. Well, Paul made it clear that from the scriptures that being one of God's people and one of Abraham's true children was never about nationality or genetics or religious zeal or family relationships or how hard a person tried to keep the law. Being one of God's people and one of Abraham's children was always about having faith in the promise of God. Those who come to faith are those who are sovereignly elected or chosen by God. Paul resoundingly declared that those who are, who are in God's family are the ones God chooses and regenerates, not because they deserve it, but in spite of the fact that they don't. Now, what follows are two other objections. First is if God chooses some and not others for salvation, then God isn't fair. And Paul answers that and makes it clear that salvation isn't about fairness. Because if it was about fairness, then we all would be condemned. That's what's fair. Salvation is about God's mercy, and God has the right to have mercy on who He has mercy, because He's God. The second objection is that if God is sovereign, then man isn't really responsible for his actions because God is the one who makes mankind sinful. And Paul destroyed that objection, too, by making it clear that mankind doesn't have the, the ability to stand in judgment of God, not to mention God has the right to t do what He wants with creation, including sinful man. And the truth is, people forget that God didn't make man sinful. Man did. Man made himself sinful. Man, by his own will, by his own actions, is sinful and in rebellion to God. And if God didn't choose to have mercy, then everyone would be lost. That's the truth. Because the truth is all of mankind is covered in sin. And because of that, they refuse to come to him on his terms unless God supernaturally intervened and changed their hearts. Mankind refuses to pursue God's righteousness, but instead pursues his own. And so Paul, in this text, now summarizes the issue and puts the blame for the, the failure of the Jews to come to faith in Christ where it belongs. And that is on the Jews who refuse God's righteousness offered to them in the gospel. He puts it right back on them. Paul asks, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it, that is, a righteousness by faith. See, the thing that we need to remember, and it's really easy to kind of get lost in, is that being right with God is not simply about, having, about not having sin in our lives. It's, it's not simply about just never actual sinning. 
being right with God is actually about being righteous, positively speaking. It's, it's, about, it's about being perfectly obedient to God, positively. Being right with God requires perfect obedience to God's standard of righteousness. It's about obeying all of God's commands perfectly. It's about complete moral perfection. If you remember in Romans chapter 2, Paul said, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. God's righteousness requires, it demands perfect obedience to the law. That's what the requirement is, to have a relationship with God. But here's the problem. No one can do that. No one is able to live that way. Remember, the law of God can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And in fact, it can be further summarized in, the, in two commands that Jesus said. They are to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the truth is, if you really are honest, you know that you cannot do those things perfectly. It's impossible. You do not have the ability in, in your own sinful nature to love God the way that He deserves to be loved, to put Him first in all things, to reverence Him, reverence Him in all things, to honor Him in all things. You don't have it in you to do that. And it's not in you to love everyone around you the way they ought to be loved too. I mean, let's be honest. You don't even love your friends that way, much less the, the strangers around you, much less your enemies. God's righteous standard requires that that of mankind, right? That we love him perfectly and our neighbor perfectly. And that means then his righteous requirements are out of our reach. Everyone on our own, we fail to attain that. But Paul says here in the text, the Gentiles who were not even pursuing that righteousness, who were not even like chasing that righteousness, who didn't even have the, the law given to them, they didn't even care about God and His righteousness. Somehow now have obtained that righteousness. They have now become righteous. What a scandalous statement for Paul to make here. This is a shocking thing for him to say. This would have offended many Jewish people. Mankind, if he is going to have a right relationship with God, must be completely righteous in the eyes of God, but, but, but these Gentiles who weren't even trying to be righteous somehow attained that righteousness. How? Well, Paul tells us right here. It's a righteousness that is by faith. They attained that righteousness, that righteous standing with God, not by works, but by faith, which is what Paul, by the way, has been talking about ever since the very beginning of the letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness, listen to that, the righteousness of God is revealed, it is manifested, it is shown from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals a righteousness that is from God. Right? Not, a, not a righteousness that comes from within us. It's a righteousness of God, from God, that God Himself grants to us. 
a righteousness that is given to a person that gives him the right standing with God so he has a perfect relationship with God and it's not on the basis of works of the law but on the basis of faith. And that's the idea that Paul is communicating but it's not an idea that he invented. It's not a new idea to him. It was an old idea because what Paul does even in Romans 1 is he quotes the Old Testament and says, which says that the righteous, those who become righteous before God, live by, what does it say? By faith. You see, you must be perfectly righteous before God in order to be part of his family. But the problem is you can't earn that righteousness by yourself on your own, which means on your own you were helpless and hopeless. But Paul says that these Gentiles who weren't even pursuing this righteousness attained it, and they attained it by faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Because the gospel promises a righteousness that is available to us apart from the law. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul had said just that. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Who believe. And then he says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the, gl the glory of God. Right? All have sinned and made themselves unworthy, but they're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see, in the gospel, is not just about forgiveness of sins. It is about forgiveness, but it's not just about forgiveness. It's also about the righteousness of God for those who believe in Christ. A righteousness that comes by faith. And again, this is not a new idea. Paul uses the example of Abraham and David as examples of this in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, Paul says, And to those, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, is counted or credited as righteousness. What a glorious truth that is. The person who himself cannot live up to God's standard, the person who cannot earn for himself a righteousness that's required for salvation, that person who can only fail in his own effort, that person, by putting his faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, is declared by God himself, is counted as completely righteous by faith, as if he lived a perfect life. He, is, he has a right standing with God simply by faith in Christ. And again, what a scandal this is, right? Because how is that possible? Well, Paul, if you remember in Romans chapter 5, he tells us, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, Adam's failure led to, to all of mankind being embroiled in sin. So as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, the, the righteousness of Christ, leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. 
You see, the thing that we need to remember and keep in mind when we think about Christ is not only did He die for our sins, but He lived for our righteousness. He lived the perfect life that was required of us that we, we just can't live, right? And He kept the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep, and, and He fulfilled the law that we all broke and still break even to this day. By faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is is given to us. It's credited to us. God requires perfect obedience, a perfect righteousness for us to be his people, but we can't accomplish that. And so God sent Jesus into the world to die to make atonement for our sins, but also to live so that we can also then be righteous. And by faith in Christ, our sins are washed completely away because our sins are credited to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness, his perfect obedience is, is granted to us as if it's our own. Again, that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Jerry Bridges wrote, to be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. It means to actually to be declared righteous before God. It means God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to His Son, Jesus Christ, and and has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. What a glorious truth that is, again. It's a complete salvation. And Paul says, these Gentiles who who were not religious, who were not ever pursuing God, found that righteousness by faith in Christ. They heard the gospel and received it with gladness and believed and became righteous. What's, what's interesting is, is how, how a sinner who is caught in the depths of their sin seems to be so quick to respond to the gospel so quickly, but not so with those who fancied themselves as religious. Isn't it interesting how that works? By the way, I don't know if you, when you read the gospels, that's exactly what you see. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's exactly what you see. You see sinners who, who had no hope and who were not pursuing righteousness, flocking to Jesus and hearing His message and coming to Him by the droves. But then you have the self-righteous, legalistic, religious people you know, turning their eye to the side to Jesus and rejecting Him. Paul actually unpacks for us why that happens. He continues, he says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness is by faith. But but that Israel, who pursued the law, would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul says these people who were the descendants of Abraham, those who were given the law, those who, who grew up in this religious tradition, who had the temple, whose forefathers actually walked with God, they pursued the law. They followed the law. They did everything they could do that they thought would lead to righteousness, but still failed to actually attain the law. And again, this would have been something scandalous for Paul to say because the Jews were very serious about their religion. They were very serious about their traditions. In fact, Paul says later on that they were zealous. These people were passionate about God. Their whole national identity was tied up in God and their worship of Him. 
Everything they did was centered on his commands. Everything that they did was centered around what they thought to be their identity in him. And so they took the law extremely seriously. They did everything in their power to keep all the commands. In fact, they even made extra rules to help them to keep these commands and, and to be compliant with the law. I, I mean, even today, I don't know if you noticed, but like um, there's an appliance manufacturer that actually has what's called a Sabbath setting on, on a stove because, because Jews are so serious about not keeping the law. They believe that pushing a button on the Sabbath day amounts to work. And so that the oven will actually come on right before the Sabbath and it'll be warm. It's okay to put food in a, an oven that's already warm, but you can't push a button to create a flame because that's, that, that's how serious these people are about keeping the law. They have all these particular rules to try to keep the law. They were passionate about knowing the law and doing everything the law said. And if being religious and being sincere and passionate about obeying rules made a person righteous before God, then they would be righteous. But Paul says they still failed to attain that law and the righteousness of God. Paul says, for I, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish your own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, the problem is that they were ignorant, I would say willingly, of the truth. And the truth is you cannot make yourself righteous before God. You can't do it. I hope you understand that, church. I mean, I, I, mean, I really hope that this is one of those things that like, if you don't remember anything else from this sermon today, that that's the thing that you remember, right? Everyone in the world thinks that, that for some reason they can, they can be good enough on their own. There are people when you ask them, hey, do you deserve heaven? Yes, why? Because I'm a good person. Everybody thinks that they're a good person on their own. Every person you will meet thinks that they can be good people and they believe in the greatest lie ever told. They believe that they can do enough in their life to make their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds on this cosmic scale of life. They will believe that if they will just commit to being good enough, if they will just be serious enough and religious enough and sincere enough, and if they'll just be loving enough and, and compassionate enough, then somehow, someway, by the magic that happens in the universe, that the cosmic scale in the sky will finally tip in their favor and they're going to kick open the gates of heaven and walk right in. That's what most people believe. They think they have it within themselves to earn the right to, to go to be with God but it's a lie. Church, it's a lie. No one can save themselves through self-righteousness. No one can save themselves. Church, say that with me. No one can save themselves. No one can. If, if there's one thing, again, that you walk out of here that you just understand that it is not within your ability or not anybody else that you know, I don't care how good the person they are and how awesome they are and how many good things they do, no one has within themselves the ability to save themselves to get themselves into heaven. It will never happen. Why? Because God's standard of righteousness is perfection. Not pretty good, not 
really, really good and not almost perfect. It is absolute moral perfection, and no one can live that way. The only person who's ever been able to live that way was Christ himself. Because understand this, the first time you ever lied, you were forever a sinner. Forever. The first time you rebelled against your mom, you became an enemy of God. The first time you looked at someone else's stuff with envy in your heart, you became disqualified. The first time you lusted, the first time you, you gossiped, the first time you took something that didn't belong to you, the first time you became boastful, you immediately failed that standard forever. And guess what? So did everybody else. And to make it worse, it would be one thing if we failed it once, but none of us failed it once. We failed it millions of times maybe? Probably billions? I mean, if we're honest, we all probably failed it this morning in some way. You'll probably fail again before you go to bed. Am I right? No one is ever going to earn righteousness on their own by trying really, really hard to be religious or following a bunch of rules because there is no such thing as self-righteousness. There's no such thing. It's a word, but it has no application in, in, in reality. You cannot make yourself right before God. But the, but the problem is the religious people struggle with that. The, the, the Jews did. The reason why the Jews rejected the gospel is because they were hard-hearted and self-righteous, as Paul says. Because they did not pursue righteousness by faith. They pursued it as if they could somehow earn it, as somehow they could, they could make up for it. These people were so convinced that being made righteous before God was, was about working really, really hard to keep the law, that they couldn't let themselves believe that the only way to be righteous before God was by faith in Christ. Christ and His gospel literally was a stumbling block for them. Right? And by the way, that's not a new idea either. Paul, quoting the Old Testament, writes again, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it was written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Christ is the stumbling stone that people trip over. He is the rock of offense. By the way, did you know that's the reason why in America the only religion that people really hate and persecute is Christianity? Because Christ is offensive to them. Why is Christ so offensive? Because Christ in His gospel kills our sense of self-righteousness. Again, the late John Stott clearly expresses that. He says, why do people stumble over the cross? Because it undermines our self-righteousness. Christ is a stumbling stone for the religious because the gravitational pull of religious people is self-righteousness. And it was that way for the Jews. They rejected Christ because they believed the lie. They were in love with their religiousness. They were in love by their own efforts. Look at me. Look at me. Look at how I do this and how I do that and how... I wear the right clothes and how I act the right way. They were in love with the idea that somehow, some way, that if I work hard enough and are and, and devout enough and, and chaste enough, that somehow I can save myself. But again, John Stott once wrote, the fact that Christ died for our sin 
is proof positive that we cannot save ourselves. This is what the Jews and people who adopt some sort of works righteousness fail to understand. They fail to recognize, first of all, the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. The view of God is just simply too low. And we recently talked about how God is far and away different from us. Right? We've made that really clear that God, we might be made in His image, but He's not like us. He is perfect in all of His attributes. He is perfect in righteousness and holiness. He is completely different from us. Secondly, they fail to recognize God's requirements for fellowship is not really, really good. It's not 99%. It's not 99.99%. It is absolute perfection. We must attain that to be in His presence. We must be completely perfect, and no one can live that way. And third, probably the most important, is they fail to recognize the horrific nature of our sin. Our sin is horrific, and it is heinous before God. In fact, it is so horrific and heinous that there was only one remedy, and that remedy for it to be removed from us was for God the Father to kill, to crush His beloved, perfect Son for us. Do you understand the depth of that? There are preachers who will say the cross is a sign of my value to God and the links that he would go to redeem me. No, the cross is a sign of how ugly and vile your sin is and what it costs to set you free from it. Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb, lived a perfect, loving life, loving God and his fellow men, and then willingly was tortured and beaten until the flesh of his body was hanging off of him. And then a crown of thorns was, was jammed onto his head and he was beaten some more. And then he was forced to carry his own cross up to the hill of Calvary. And then once there, they took nine-inch nails and they drove them into his hands and to his feet. And then they hoisted him up into the air for all to see. And his countrymen the Jews who were his genetic family hurled insults at him and mocked him and profaned his name as he hung there suffocating to breathe as his battered body struggled and labored to keep him alive. That's the horrific nature of, the, of, of a crucifixion is that you slowly suffocate to death and your only recourse is to push off of that nail in your ankles and pull with your body on your hands to try to get up high enough to, to relax your ribs so you can take a breath in. It's a slow, deliberate death. Look upon the cross as the Son of God endured the awful and terrible wrath of God as the, the, the wrath that we deserve as He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at Christ and His body hanging there as He grows weaker and weaker by the moment and finally shouts out in victory, it is finished, and then breathes out His last breath and dies in your place. That's what it took to set us free from sin. 
That was the price that had to be paid because sin is vile and atrocious in the sight of God. And these Jewish people failed to understand that. They saw their sin the same way that people do today. That it's just a lapse in judgment. It's just a mistake. It's not really a big deal. But it is because it costs Christ his life. God crushed his son so that you could be set free. It is a big deal. <clears throat> but these religious zealots couldn't, couldn't grasp that. They were so in love with their own traditions and so in love with their self-righteousness, they rejected Christ and his gospel. The thing we need to understand is, is the reason self-righteousness is so dangerous is because self-righteousness is the epitome of arrogance and blasphemy. It's arrogant to believe that you can do something for yourself that's requ that required the blood of Christ to accomplish. It's arrogant for a person to believe they have it within themselves to make themselves right before God. It is sheer arrogance. And then it's blasphemous because self-righteousness is like spitting on the sacrifice of Christ. It's like looking at Christ on the cross and saying, you died for nothing. I don't need you. I can do it myself. But here's the absolute truth. No, you can't. No one can. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. Right? And, and, and not to just be saved so you can move on to Christianity 2.2. You still need the gospel every single day of your life because you still can't do it. Even though that you have the Holy Spirit in you, even though that you have the Word of God that, that leads you, even though that you will grow in holiness and obedience by the power of God, you still need Christ and His gospel because you will never, ever be able to save yourself. You'll never be able to perfect yourself. So many people see that Christianity is like this, all right? And the gospel is like this. Okay, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Now I'll take it from here. That's really kind of the idea that many people live by. But it isn't like that at all. The Christian faith is the same thing as it was in the beginning. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, change my heart because I can't do it. Lord Jesus, rescue me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord Jesus, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer you. But you promised me that if I would trust in you, you would save me. And Lord, that's what I have. I trust in you. That's it. I am trusting in you. And, and by your grace, I'm going to hold on to that promise all the days of my life. That's all that I have. You see, it is always and forever about the gospel 101. You never, ever graduate from the gospel. You never out grow it. Now, don't misunderstand me. You will grow as you follow Jesus Christ. By the natural byproduct of your faith, you will begin to, to, to live your life in a way that reflects God's righteousness. You will grow to become more and more obedient. The Holy Spirit will convict you and lead you into righteousness. But that's still by God's grace. You never, ever, ever outgrow the gospel. Because righteousness has always been, will always be, by faith and not by works. And that's the thing that religious people fail to see. 
That's what the Jews failed to attain. They rejected the gospel. The Jews failed to become part of God's family because God and His sovereignty and because the Jews were responsible for their refusal to put their faith in the Messiah that came to save them. It was their own arrogant, prideful fault. And God in His sovereignty chose to redeem some of them, but not others. Their self-righteousness was their own undoing. But the last thing I want you to notice here is right in the middle of this whole explanation about righteousness and works of righteousness, Paul expresses his love for these people. An expression I think that ought to reflect our own hearts as we grow in. Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul, even though that these people have arrogantly rejected gospel, the gospel, even though these people had persecuted Paul and hated him, even though these people rightly deserved God's justice and condemnation, Paul was still brokenhearted over them. If you remember back in the beginning of Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I could myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then he wraps up you know, this response to this big objection by saying, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God I mean, to God for them is that they may be saved. What a, what a wonderful example for us all. Because Paul understands what's at stake here. Even though that these people don't deserve God's justice, his heart aches that they have not yet found mercy because Paul recognizes those who have, who have found mercy, including himself, have done so not because they deserve it, but in spite of the fact that they don't. Paul recognizes that he himself deserves the same fate that they do and the righteousness that he has found by faith rather than making him arrogant the way self-righteousness does actually makes him humble and it makes him sensitive to those who have not found that righteousness. And notice it says his prayer to God for them is to be saved. Paul prays, for them because he loves them and because he knows that if they are ever going to be saved, God's going to have to be the one to save them. God's going to have to change their hearts, which is why we, as a church family, say all the time, our job as evangelists, and we are all evangelists, but our job is to sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change their hearts, and then never give up. You sow the seed by proclaiming the Word of God to people. You tell them what the gospel is. And you tell them over and over and over and over and over and over. And you love the people. And you do so by loving people actively, being patient with them, being kind with them, praying for them, doing good to those people, even the ones who, who wrong you. You love them, whether they're family, friend, neighbor, or stranger. And then we pray that God will do the only thing that God can do the thing that only God Himself can do, and that is to change people's hearts. We pray that God will change their hearts so they will receive the gospel. And then we never give up doing those things, knowing that if we'll continually do the part that God has called us to do, He will do His part, and we will see people come to faith in Him. So then, now what do we, 
as a church do with this? As we wrapped up Romans 9 and begin Romans 10. Well, the answers are usually the same, right? First thing is, if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. Today's the day of salvation. No one has to go off into eternity devoid of God's grace. He's holding out for you right now the gift of eternal life. Repent and believe the gospel. And it's simple. It's a recognition that you are a sinner who can't save yourself, but God has done it all for you. Jesus lived the perfect righteous life that you couldn't live, and He died to make atonement for your sin and was resurrected, proving that He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He has the power to save you. And the only requirement is that you turn to Him and believe. Hold on to that in that alone. Repent of self-righteousness and trying to earn the right to go to heaven and trust in Christ alone. And the promise is that, is that if you will believe, you'll be saved. It's that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. By the way, that's always the right answer. What do you need to be do to be saved? Believe in Christ. That's it. And so if you've not done so, then today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe and trust in Him today. And then if you are in Christ, then brothers and sisters, hear me. Let us repent of our collective legalism and rest in the gospel. Yes, we ought to strive to follow Christ and, and learn obedience, but understand that obedience will be the natural byproduct of our love for Him, not the justification for our relationship with Him. That when you fall down, you make a mess of things, when you do stupid things, you know, like when you're driving and that dude cuts you off and that middle finger jumps up and you say some things you know you shouldn't be saying, right? Or that you look at someone in a way that you shouldn't be looking at them because somehow in a moment you just got caught up or you do something stupid or yell at your kids for the wrong reason or you're disobedient to, to your parents. Whatever it is, when you do something that you know is sinful, rather than going, oh, I better fix that so I better be right with God, you, what you need to do is realize is by faith, you're already right with God. Now turn to Him and just receive His love and just trust that He's going to continue to change your heart. Understanding that He never stopped loving you even when you did stupid stuff. That you didn't become unsaved because you failed. That you just turn right back to Him and you rest in the gospel. That your hope has nothing to do with your ability to make God love you. Your hope is what Christ has accomplished for you and you holding on and trusting in that. And then number three is always then let us be the instrument that goes out in the world and rescues the lost. Let us be the ones, as we approach Easter, as we talk about the death and resurrection of Christ, let us be the ones who go out and sow the seed and tell people about Jesus and love people even when it hurts to love them and then pray, get on our needs to pray for those people and then never give up. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.